I went right back in into the drug distribution, bringing in hundreds of kilograms of cocaine, millions of dollars, party life. As I opened up the window, the cops was there with their guns drawn, freeze, you know, don't move. So I went back in my home and I looked at my wife and I told her, my life is over. And the preacher says, there's a gentleman here that has been chasing after things and those things have led him down a road of destruction. He says, the peace that God can give you will surpass all of your understanding. I was raised in uh, Queens, New York. Uh, my parents are from the Dominican Republic uh, and they arrived here in the early 60s with my two eldest brothers. Um, and so they wanted to extend their family and they had three additional children. And I'm the youngest of five uh, boys. Uh, it was um, really challenging at home because five brothers, five boys, you could only imagine the competitiveness and one trying to try to find their identity within the household. Um, but I was the youngest and so I was always taken care of and looked after. Um, and so growing up in New York City, such a diverse community in Queens, um, you know, at my earlier age, uh, about 11, 12, in the er early 80s and 90s, it was the trend of New York City with the hip hop culture. Um, there was gang surfacing in the area. And so I wanted to kind of fit in and be a part of that culture during the time. And so I got involved with some young people uh, in the community, which they were, you know, uh, local gang members, uh, and I was introduced to marijuana at basically at 12 years of age. Wow. Um, once I tried marijuana, I tried to conceal it from my parents. I had two other siblings that were also sort of, you know, involved with, with me. And, um, and so we started to consume marijuana and alcohol, and that really caused a lot of problems because my parents were somewhat noticing of my behavior. Uh, they noticed that I was really changing in my attitude towards them and towards school. Uh, and so at the age of about 13, I decided to join fully into this gang in Queens, New York. And I remember I was hanging out in a park, uh, smoking weed, marijuana, and this two assailants, two uh, people entered the park and they approached us. And one of the guys took out a bat and almost hit me and tried to hit the gang leader. And he ran off. And as he ran off to the right, uh, I kind of, you know, stood up to sort of grab my posture to a fighting posture, right? And as I looked towards my right, uh, the person that was there, the assailant, he pulled out a, a firearm and shot my friend and said some words to him, said, look, next time you mess with me, I'm gonna kill you. Wow. Uh, so when they left the park, I approached him. I didn't see any blood and I picked up his shirt and apparently it seemed that he had internal bleeding and he eventually passed on. You know, it was, I thought that was, was going to shake my core, right? It was going to change my behavior, uh, but it didn't. I continued to, you know, be involved in, in this gang um, and consume drugs and smoke weed. And then eventually that led me to use cocaine. Now in the early eighties, cocaine was being used in the streets. It was was sort of like a fad. People wanted to be a part of the Hollywood culture and people were using cocaine. And um, I tried it. And when I tried cocaine, I was totally hooked to the drug. And there were some local dealers in the neighborhood. And I had approached them and said, 
look, you know, I can sell some drugs. Uh, I'm young. I, what are they going to do to me? You know, the cops. So I started to sell small quantities of cocaine wow. uh, in this particular neighborhood of, of Queens. And it was all to sustain the habit um, to use the, the drugs. And that eventually led to me using heroin. Um, How old were you then? I was about uh, 13 and a half. Wow. When I started using heroin. Um, and then at, at that time, you know, I was just really strung out using cocaine and heroin. Did your parents notice any difference? As, I mean, as... they, they noticed my behavior that I was, yeah. you know, coming home, you know, drugged out, but they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to interact with me. They didn't know how to address the situation huh. being, you know, from, from uh, Dominican Republic immigrants. So they didn't know how to deal with the current situation that they were dealing with their son. So I remember one day I was hanging out with some guys and I said, look, let's do some, you know, let's do a robbery. And we committed a robbery and I was arrested and I was sent up to juvenile detention center in Queens, in, in the Bronx. And there, um, I, they sentenced me to close to a year in prison. And so when I was released, my parents said, enough is enough. They concocted a plan to send me to the Dominican Republic, thinking that would change my behavior and my character. And they sent me off to my grandparents' home. And so when I arrived there, you know, I'm in the Dominican Republic, trying to kind of fit in uh, to the kids there and try to find my place in this island and this community I was living in. And so they uh, registered me to a private school. And I, as I was there, I was trying to, you know, fit in with the local kids. And I, I just didn't feel comfortable. Uh, my Spanish wasn't 100% at the time even though my first language was Spanish and I just wanted out. I didn't want to be a part of this school. And so the, I remember not going to school. They had strict regulations at this particular uh, school and I was expelled. And so my grandparents said, you know, this kid is just a tough kid. So I know what I'm going to do with him. I'm going to take him out onto the fields. They owned some land. Uh, my grandfather was in the agriculture business and he said, I'm going to show him a lesson. I'm going to give him hard labor. And he, take, he took me to this field, passed me a machete, and said, you're going to work the fields with me. And he owned, um, you know, he was uh, harvesting rice and plantains and, and other uh, vegetables, and, and he put me to do hard labor. And I was like, I, I wasn't called to do this. Like, what is going on? So I, I did that for a while. And, you know, unfortunately, in the Dominican Republic, alcohol is readily available to young people. And I started to consume alcohol and drink, you know, arrive home drunk. And my grandfather, he was just upset with me. He's like, I don't know what to do with this kid. So he contacted my mom and he said, we need to send them back to New York because he's just creating havoc here. He's a nuisance and we're just tired of his behavior. And so he, they contacted my mom and my mom said, okay, you know, I don't know what to do with this boy. During my time there in the Dominican Republic, I had met soon to be wife, you know, uh, Alexandria, through a friend of mine that was living in the Dominican Republic at the time. And so we just became friends and uh, they sent me off to New York. And I was back in New York City, you know, going to high school. And the first semester of high school, I ran into Alexandria. And so we started to talk and then we started to date and um, we became close. And I just, you know, at the time, I was still sort of thinking, you know, do I continue to behave the way I was behaving, you know, getting involved in gangs, or do I get really serious with my girlfriend? 
And so I decided to get serious with my girlfriend. And right out of high school, uh, we got married. My parents were like, what are you doing? You got to go to college, you know? And I was like, I'm in love. Latinos, we get married early. I got married um, and I was, you know, living with her. And my second eldest brother and my fourth eldest brother were involved in this cartel out of Colombia. And they were distributing cocaine to the United States. And uh, I didn't want no part of it because I knew that, you know, drugs had affected me as a teenager. And um, I figured, you know, I don't want no part of what they're doing, distributing hundreds and hundreds of kilograms of cocaine. They had luxury cars, expensive homes, but I just didn't want no part of it because I knew that it affected me as a young person. You know, I was addicted to drugs. And I remember uh, one day being laid off from work and I contacted my fourth eldest brother and I said, look, I need money. And I said, I don't want to sell drugs, but I need to get involved in your uh, business dealings. And so he invited me to the stash house. It has some security measures in place. And so when I got there, the first thing that I witnessed was a Mac 10 on the table. Uh, they had the TV blasted to muffle the sound of the counting machines. And towards my right, there was hundreds and hundreds of dollar bills, uh, different denominations and 50s and 20s. And he said to me, I want you to count the money and let me know how much money is there. And so I counted this money. There was $1.2 million in cash. And so the TV was blasted to muffle that sound of those counting machines as I was counting the money. And it seemed surreal, you know, that I'm over here counting, I'm involved in this drug enterprise and I'm counting $1.2 million and I'm only like 20 years old. Wow. He rewards me by giving me thousands of dollars. And I was like, wow, this is an easy in. So I started to immerse myself further into the enterprise. And now I was not just counting the money, I was distributing the cocaine. I was organizing drug uh, stops and runs with the organization and millions of dollars passing through my hands. So I started now to get involved fully into the operation. And I thought I was on top of the world, having all this money, party life in clubs, hanging out with celebrities, going to their mansions, uh, thinking that, you know, this is the life. You know, I have all this gain, I have all these riches, you know, I'm living the life. One day I was in my car, my brother said, look, we gotta make this run, we gotta drop off this narcotics to this client in Manhattan in front of this luxury hotel. And so we usually don't make those runs. We have our workers take the drugs and we usually have in our vehicles what we call in Spanish caletas. They're uh, compartments in the vehicles, they're called traps, where we have kilograms uh, housed in those areas. And so that day we decided to take the drugs ourselves because my brother wanted to meet this particular client. So as I was driving, there was uh, uh, TNT officers that were pursuing us. I had no idea, but when I looked back, I noticed that someone was following us. And so I sped away and got close to the Queensboro Bridge, which separates Queens and Manhattan. And all of a sudden, as I stop at the traffic light, I see a patrol car approaching our car and a number of other cars behind us. We usually have, when we do these runs, we have someone in another vehicle driving just in case that anyone pursues us, that that other worker of ours would crash into the police car and that we can 
get away from the cops. Wow. That only happens in Hollywood. It didn't happen in our case. The cops surrounded our vehicle. They arrested us. They hauled me to, to the local uh, precinct. And I remember I was in the, in the precinct thinking, man, I'm caught now with 25 kilograms of cocaine in the trunk of my vehicle. Now they know our stash house. They went there and they seized an additional six kilograms of cocaine wow. inside a Mercedes-Benz 600. And I'm in this prison and the very first reaction was, I need to get out of jail. I wasn't thinking about the wrongs I did, that I, I'm hurting society, you know, spewing narcotics out into the communities. I was just thinking about self. I wanted to get out of jail. So I contacted my attorneys. We had attorneys in place. And I said, listen, do the best that you can. We need to get out. And the very next day, I pick up the newspaper. And what was blasted across that particular newspaper read $3.8 million seized of cocaine. Two brothers incarcerated facing life in prison. No bail. At the time, Mayor Giuliani uh, was the mayor of the city of New York, and he wanted to crack down on drug traffickers and drug dealers. And the prosecutor was Richard Brown, and I was faced with life in prison, not knowing what to do, you know, trying to figure things out. At that moment, the attorneys come back and say, look, we're going to work out a plea. You have no bail, but we're going to work out a plea. They're going to give you three to nine years of incarceration and your brother four to 12 years. Now, I was housed in the notorious jail called Rikers Island, where at that time and still today, there's thousands of people incarcerated, over 14,000. And I'm housed in this prison trying to, you know, again, figure things out. And the day came of my sentencing. I got three to nine years of incarceration, my brother four to 12. So they send us out to state prison. And in state prison, there was an opportunity that arose that whether I can either sign into a program, which was a military camp, my sentence would be reduced almost in half. And I had already in about a year and a half incarcerated. And so I, I, I seized the opportunity and said, okay, I'm going to sign to this program, which I did. And they sent me off to a program called Shock, which is basically to rehabilitate young people or people that are, um, you know, consuming drugs or involved in drugs. And it was just a deal that the uh, attorneys worked out with the prosecutor. And I figured I'm going to sign into this program because I'm going to, you know, get out only in, in six months. As I arrived to this facility, the very first thing that would happen to me was that I had ex-Marines on my face saying, get in parade rest. Give me a hundred push-ups." I'm like, what in the world is going on? What is this? And as I was there to try to fit into the regimen and the program that was registered for these inmates to apply, if they don't finish it, they go back to state prison and do their time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to the chapel. Again, I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I had a form of godliness, but denying its power. So I knew a little bit about Christianity, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at the time. And I went to this chapel and I wanted to negotiate with God. And so as I went there, I said, God, if you allow me to pass this program, because I don't want to go back to state prison and finish my time, I got to do three to nine years of incarceration. But if you allow me to finish this program, I promise you, I'm not going to drink alcohol for six months. It was ignorance on my part and stupidity. Instead of saying, God changed my life. Look what I've done. I'm destroying communities. 
I'm destroying lives. But it wasn't like that. I wanted to negotiate with God. And I finished the program, and upon my release, I was out in society, I'm out on parole, and the first thing I wanted to do after I completed those six months is to go have a drink. So I went to a bar to celebrate the end of my sobriety, the end of me consuming alcohol. And, and as I was there, how the enemy sets us up, I run into an old associate, wow. an old person that I had drug runs with, and he said, listen, I am controlling now over a ton of cocaine. If you want in, you let me know. And as I was hanging out with a, old, uh, with a buddy of mine, having a drink and, and kind of thinking of what he was saying, I, my mind was racing, thinking, man, I can make hundreds of millions of dollars. I could be on top of the world again, on top of the game. I know now how the police operates. I can have more control over the distribution of cocaine, which I was selling throughout the Eastern Seaboard. I was like, I can do this. I can make this happen. But my heart was saying, don't do it. So I go back to, in the, in the bars, I was drinking, and I go back to this individual, this Colombian individual, and I tell him, I'm in. I want to take now, give me 11 kilograms of cocaine. So I send my employee to get the drugs. And it reminds me of the scriptures in Proverbs 26, 11, where it says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so do fools repeat their folly. Wow. I went right back in into the drug distribution, controlling different locations of distribution points, bringing in hundreds of kilograms of cocaine, millions of dollars, party life, you know, spending tens of thousands of dollars. And my second eldest brother had another case going on, pending case, and he got busted in Miami and they extradited him to New York. And when I found out about his extradition, he was in New York, we bailed him out on a half a million dollars. And as, I, as he got out of jail, he said, what are you doing? I said, man, I'm back in. I'm controlling hundreds of kilograms of cocaine. He's like, great, I wanna partner up with you. And so he partnered up with me and he had a client that was working, uh, he had a, a trucking company where he would distribute cocaine from Miami to New York and from California to New York. And so we used this service to house the drugs there, you know, thousands of kilograms, hundreds of kilograms of cocaine. Unbeknownst to us, he was working with the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. He was negotiating with us. We were giving him drugs to pick up. And all along, he was recording all of our conversations. And also, he had drugs that we were giving him. As time went on, we were being investigated by the Drug Enforcement Agency by the uh, federal government. So my brother and I were living this life, drink, you know, drinking, partying, and then one day, cops surrounded our vehicles and they arrested us and they sent us to a prison in Manhattan called Metropolitan Correctional Facility, uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center, where the uh, notorious drug lord, El Chapo, was housed. And then from there, we negotiated. I tried to negotiate my case. I was waiting about two or three months to see if I can get bail. My brother was denied bail because he had revoked his first bail, getting indicted on the second case uh, with me. My attorneys finally worked out a deal and they got me out with a half a million dollars uh, out on bail. And so I'm out on bail, trying to figure things out, talking to my attorneys. What am I looking at? 
And they told me, you're looking at 18 to 25 years of incarceration. And I was like, I'm going to have to do something, you know, and I'm trying to think about ways of getting money again because everything was seized. I lost everything that I'd had before. The very first reaction was I could stick up the uh, drug cartel. But then I thought if I do that and I steal tens of millions of dollars, they're going to go after my family. So what I did was I was just inebriated every day, drinking from morning to night, getting drunk. And I told my driver, because I couldn't drive. I was, uh, they were looking for me, the cops, because I decided to jump bail. So I was a fugitive. So I had drivers drive me around. And I would hide out in casinos. I would hide out in different homes. And one day after being out on the land for six months, I told my driver, drive me to my house. And I lived in a gated community. He's like, you crazy. Cops are looking for you. I said, I want to see my wife and my kids. And as I went there the very next day, my wife picks up the phone and it was the police, the state police, marshals, uh, federal officers. And they told my wife, tell your husband to surrender himself. If not, you know, it's going to go ugly for him. Uh, if he has any guns, toss it out the window. You know, we want this to, to, to be a smooth transition of his arrest. So my wife wakes me up. She says, the cops have the house surrounded. My very first reaction was put on my clothes, open the window, jump out. As I opened up the window, the cops was there with their guns drawn, freeze, you know, don't move. So I went back in my home and I looked at my wife and I told her, my life is over. Open the door. Cops came rushing in. They handcuffed me. My kids were young at the time. You know, uh, they were three years old, four years old. And so my wife placed them in the back room. And so they came charging in. They arrested me. My wife just, she had such uh, anger enraged because she felt like this is it. I'm losing my husband. She said, you know, put your guns down. He's right here. And so as they arrested me, they took me into their waiting vehicle and they placed me in the back. As they sped away, I remember kind of looking back and my wife filled in, she filled in in what took place there that day uh, after the cops uh, sped away. But they were celebrating and they were saying, we arrested this drug lord, they were celebrating, you know, rightly so. But in the same token, my wife felt like, man, my husband, I'm never going to see him again. I'm never going to see him again. And as they were in the vehicle, I told the officer, and they were going at a high velocity. I said, open the back door. I want to end my life. And he said, you never know what could happen in your case. So I responded, and, and you know, and I looked at him, and I was like, I don't know. I felt a sense of relief for a moment, and they took me to a federal detention center, so I waived my extradition to New York, where my case was out of. You know, what was crazy is that as they were transporting me to New York, it was like the movie Con Air, because they took me to an airfield, private airfield, this, lane, this airplane lands. You have all these federal officers with, you know, high-end rifles, were all chained up. They surround the aircraft. And I was like, man, I'm really in for a long haul here. This is, this is a big case that I'm deal, dealing with. And, and so they transported me in this van to New York City, to Brooklyn, New York, MDC, Metropolitan Detention Center. Now, little did I know in the way that I was, when I was going to prison, that my brother had surrendered his life to Jesus in the six months that I was out as a fugitive. And I didn't even know. I didn't have 
a contact with him. I didn't know about his conversion. And his prayer was, God, send my brother to the same facility, the same cell block where I'm housed, so I can share the gospel with him. And I had no idea. And so I arrived to MDC Brooklyn. And as I arrived to the detention center and I enter this unit, and who do I see? My brother. And he looks at me and he just extends his hand up in the air and he says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And I look at my brother with indifference. I'm like, what is he talking about? Praise the Lord, hallelujah. We're in jail. He's, he's lost his mind, you know? So he's like, you know, God loves you. You don't understand. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for your salvation. I'm like, what are you saying you've been praying for my salvation? You've been praying for, for me to, to be in jail with you? You know, and he said to me, one day you'll get it. And he, you know, he kind of smiled and, and he said, it's good to see you. It's good for you to, you know, to, to be alive. Uh, because he was uh, having this prayer with God in this moment six months prior that I didn't know. And he said, God, if you don't bring him here that I can share this gospel, they're going to kill him. You know, he's perhaps he's running wild out in the streets. And I'm there and I'm trying to deal with my case and I hire different attorneys and they're giving me bad news. And I'm in this detention center, locked up 24 hours. I'm not seeing, you know, outside, you know, it's in a warehouse that I'm housed in and I'm just trying to figure out my ways. Again, I didn't have no repentance. I didn't have no conviction of my actions. I just felt a worldly sorrows. As the scripture says, that leads to uh, condemnation, condemnation leads to death. And I'm there trying to figure things out. Again, trying to do it my way. And I'm so distraught, I'm so depressed. And the attorneys come back with the bad news. And they said, you're facing minimum of 18 years of incarceration. Wow. And I'm trying to communicate with my wife, can't get in a hold of her. I'm, I'm talking to my mom, calling her, I'm talking to these attorneys. I fired one, I hired another one, fired him, and I have no money now. And I'm down to the last attorney. And my brother says, I want you to come to the chapel. Now, this chapel was being controlled or not controlled, but being, the services were being held by inmates. And he said, I want you to go to the chapel. What you need is God. And I felt that there was no other recourse. I tried everything. I tried my own strength. I tried my own will and power and money, you know, and those things failed me. And I was just so empty in the presence. So I went to this chapel and I sat down in the back observing this religious service from these grown men that are facing life in prison from cases of murder. You know, they're being, they, they were extradited from Colombia and other countries to face their charges in New York. And I'm like, what is going on? And they're testifying. And they're talking about the goodness of God and giving word about how their lives were being transformed even though they're facing life in prison. And the preacher says, there's a gentleman here, there's someone here amongst 55 inmates that has been chasing after things and those things have led him down a road of destruction. And he is seeking after peace. And this is the word that I felt that God was telling me. I was telling God, I want peace. All I need is peace. I'm going crazy in prison. And as I'm sitting in the back, this pastor is saying, there's someone that's been telling God that he wants peace. He says, the peace that God can give you will surpass 
all of your understanding. You know who you are. God can change your life around. And I just felt this peace come over me. And I knew it was for me. I was like, man, how does this pastor or this inmate know my story? And I started, he says, you know who you are. And uh, he says, I want you to come to the front. As I was approaching the front, I just started to weep and cry. And I, and, and I just came before the Lord right there. And he said, look, God can change your life around. Just receive him in your heart. And he said the sinner's prayer. He says, God can change your life around. Do you believe in Jesus? I said, yes, yes. He died for you. He's, he wants to give you a new life so that you can become a new cre a creation in him. The old will be gone and everything will become new. He's going to make you a new person within. And I just started to continue to cry. And I said, yes. And I repeated this prayer over me as he was praying over me. And I felt like the spirit of God that was enveloping over me. It was taking hold of my life. And it was taking all of that sinful destruction that I was doing with my hands, poisoning lives. And within my mind, I saw like flashes of mothers that were weeping because of their son that perhaps died of the same drugs that I was spewing out into society. Mm. I was seeing addicts. I was seeing women that was perhaps giving their, uh, selling their bodies to consume the very drugs that I was spewing. All of these flashes, these images that was crossing through my mind. And I just told God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me of my sins. And you know, the Bible says that what happens is that when it's godly sorrows, it leads to repentance, and repentance leads to salvation. And I wanted to make amends with everybody. And I remember getting up, and I felt that this weight was off my shoulder. Wow. I didn't feel depressed. Even though I was in prison, I felt free. And I, I, I went to um, where the phones were located, and I made a phone call, and I called my mom. I said, Mommy, I said, Mom, the scripture says that I'm born again. I don't know, but I want to make amends with everybody. I'm sorry you know, what, I, what I've done to you and, and, and our family. And I remember trying to reach my wife and I couldn't reach her. You know, I wanted to, to just, I was telling everybody in the, in the uh, housing unit, hey man, I, I'm sorry. And they're looking at me like, they thought I was crazy. Sorry of what? And I was just so relieved at the fact that I was no longer in bondage, even though I was in physical change, uh, chains, but I felt that I was, you know, free. Yeah. How did your brother react from uh, for you know, uh, my about brother that? came up to me? He said, "That was what I was telling you. That was the prayer that I was praying to God for you when you was out there going crazy. I was telling God, send you here so that you can listen to the gospel and be saved. And so those dots were connected, and and he was so happy for me. And so my brother and I, we immense ourselves in scripture, and we started studying theology. I remember writing to. Uh, different uh, colleges and saying, hey, I'm incarcerated. I want to be a student. <laughs> and uh, they gave us uh, a free tuition. And so we started learning about the Word of God. Wow. And we contacted the American Bible Society and other local prison, uh, other local, excuse me, churches around the community to send us Bibles. And they were sending us Bibles. And so my brother and I became the pastors of this congregation. And it started to grow and grow. And we were ministering to hundreds of inmates. And we started to train our members, which inmates of our church, they became the deacons. So every time an inmate would enter a housing unit, they would give them a Bible 
and a pair of shoes, a, a sandals, and some food and say, welcome to Five North. It is not Metropolitan Detention Center. It is Miracle Deliverance Center. And the brothers in the back, Mendoza brothers, they're the pastors, and they got chapel every day. Go check them out. They would give us commissary. And that commissary, which was food, we would turn it around and give it to the inmates and give them a Bible. So God was just doing some incredible things there. Uh, we were seeing salvation. Uh, people were being healed. That the warden was saying, man, what is going on here in Five North? And it was just amazing what God was doing in this particular uh, jail. And I remember there was a guy that we had, a pastor that we had reached out to that had a radio station um, in New York. And his name is uh, the late uh, Pastor Leroy Rixie. He would become my pastor uh, when I was released. And we reached out to him and we heard him on the radio and he was giving a testimony about how he was in drugs, how he was in gangs and how God saved him. And so he became our mentor in the outside. And he would send us letters, and it was just an amazing relationship we had with him. So I remember during my, my time in jail, I wanted my wife to come to Jesus. So I fasted three days, no water. This uh, other inmate came up to me from our church and said, hey, brother, I want to fast for your wife for her salvation, and I want you to fast and pray for my case. And he had a pending case, and he wanted to be extradited back to his homeland. And I said, yes, brother. So we prayed and fasted for three days, no water, no food. And on the third day, I get a, a call from the correction officers. They come up to my cell and they said, Mendoza, you got a visit. So I go down to the visiting area. I thought it was my attorney. And I see my wife and she was sit seated there. And I approach her and she had this frown look like, man, I got something to tell you. And so she looks at me. And she says, sit down, I have some bad news to share with you. And I said, can you give me five minutes? I want to share this good news with you. And, and I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry. I've been unfaithful to you. I've, you know, basically almost destroyed our family and our kids, you know, and I just want you to know that even though if you leave me today, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know the lover of my soul. I want you to know the one that saved me. I am a new man. And she looked at me and the words, the Holy Spirit started taking a hold of her life and she started to cry. And we started to confess our sins to one another. I started to share of all the wrongs I've done. And I said to her, you know, I want you to know Jesus. And she said to me, you know, I want what you have. You are more freer in prison than myself, that I'm out, in, I'm out in society. I want the Jesus that you are professing. And so I led her to the Lord. I prayed over her and we prayed. We forgave our sins, one another. God forgive us for our sins right there. And we renewed our relationship and our marriage. And we reconciled our indifferences and God saved her in that visiting area. And then I learned through my sister-in-law, uh, through my brother actually, because my brother was incarcerated with me, that his wife, my sister-in-law, and my wife went to a church that, that week and she got baptized in water. I'm in prison and I'm preaching. I didn't even care about my case. I just wanted to preach the word of God. And many were coming to Christ. And I remember the day that I was about to get sentenced, 9-11 happens. So they postponed our sentencing date 
for three months uh, further. And uh, my, my attorneys came to visit me and said, look, we're ready for sentencing. He gave me a, pro a probation report. So basically it's before you get sentenced, they give you a probation report. And that just highlights uh, the things you've done in the community and also any of your past convictions. And I was like, forget him. They're going to give me 18 years because this is my second uh, conviction. And I, told, I looked at my attorney and I said, look, whatever report that the, the, the feds are giving me, I'm going to listen to the report of the Lord. If God wants me here for 18 years preaching the gospel, I'm going to do it. But if he wants me to be released from prison so that I can impact our communities and impact our society and work with young people, he's going to do the miracle. And he looked at me, he goes, okay, you know. And so I uh, get out into the courtroom and I'm standing before the judge. I'm next to my attorney and I glance to the back of the courtroom and I see my wife and I see my wife's pastor, which he had written a letter to the judge, and he was a former police officer. And then I see my family members there, my mom and other family members. And I remember standing before the judge, and all of a sudden, the prosecutor speaks. And he says, Your Honor, whatever time you impose on the defendant, I just hope upon his release that he would continue to do what he was doing in prison by educating other inmates and helping them out, that he would do that out into society by helping other young people and other people in need of uh, spiritual help and also uh, academia, uh, uh, educational help. And I look at my attorney, I said, did he really say that? I can't believe it, he's speaking on my behalf. And he says, whatever time you impose on him, let it be so, but I just wanna recognize that. And I couldn't believe that this is the prosecutor. And so my attorney speaks, and then I speak, and I look at the judge, and I say, Your Honor, whatever time you impose, I just want you to know that I'm a new creation in Christ. If you give me the opportunity to be released, I want to work with young people, and I want to help out those that had similar backgrounds to myself. And he looks at me, he goes, That is all, Mr. Mendoza? I say, Yes, Your Honor. And he sentences me to close to five years. I could not believe it. I was like, praise God. So as I uh, go back to the unit, I testify of what God has done. And the time comes, I already had about two and a half years waiting for the outcome of my case. They send me off to the federal detention center to, fin to finish out my time. And I went to Lewisburg Penitentiary. And I'm there and I'm preaching to the, to the, the inmates there. And um, as I'm ministering to them, uh, I'm in a penitentiary. They send me off to Allenwood Low, to a low facility. So I'm preaching there, doing Bible study. Uh, the chaplain there says, man, you need to preach at the, at the uh, chapel to the inmates. And I'm preaching and I'm ministering and I'm coming across, you know, former politician, uh, politician that was arrested there. Uh, he was housed in the facility I was in. Um, other cases of uh, people that have, you know, committed all kinds of crimes. And I remember one guy comes up to me that was involved in a Ponzi scheme of hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, brother, God is going to take you around the world. You're going to be before world leaders, president, and all kinds of important figures. He says, your gift will make room for you and will bring you before kings. And he says, God is going to do that in your life. And I look at him, I'm like, is he serious? 
a former, you know, drug lord is going to be before world leaders and traveling the world? And I was like, okay, amen, brother. And so as I was finished my, my time there, I'm about to get released. My wife sends me my, uh, my clothing, my, 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 you know, my outside clothing. I put on my clothing and I'm about to get released. And who picks me up? The New York State parole officers. And they arrest me. And they said, Mr. Mendoza, you're going to Rikers Island because you violated your parole. So after spending almost five years of incarceration, I was going back now from federal prison to the state jail. He says, you have to go to Rikers Island and you have to go before the judge. So they put the handcuffs on me. I'm in the back of the car. And he doesn't seem like I, I was joyful. At the, I was like, well, I guess God wants me to preach at Rikers Island. So the, the uh, parole officers look at me like, man, usually inmates, they have an uproar. You know, they want to fight with us. They're like, I'm not going back to jail. And I started to minister to these officers on the way to New York from Pennsylvania. They took me to uh, McDonald. They even removed the cuffs. And I'm ministering to them and talking about Jesus. And they handcuffed me again and take me to Rikers Island. So once I arrived there, I went to a, a cell before they sent me off to my uh, dormitory, to my housing unit. And I saw the deplorable state of these inmates. They were strung out, druggies. And I was like, God, you know, the cause of my hands. And I said, I want to minister the gospel to these, to these inmates. And I, you know, in, in federal prison, in state prison, they let you carry a Bible. And I opened up to the scripture and I started ministering to these inmates. And a few of them received Christ into their heart and they got saved. So they sent me off to the housing unit. I'm ministering to gang bangers in there. And they come into my Bible study. I formed a Bible study there. And it was just incredible what God was doing. So I went to see the judicial judge. I was there for about six months. And he looks at my case. He says, man, you've educated yourself in, in prison. You've helped so many people. Uh, I see that hundreds of inmates have written letters on your behalf wow. for leniency on your case from the federal prison. He's like, I'm going to release you to restore, revoke and restore, which means I'm going to send you back into the community. So I was like, praise God. So I'm getting released. And as I was going through these different steps before being released, the enemy was trying to put thoughts in my mind. How about if you get hit with another indictment? How about if you get another case comes out? And I was like, God, I've surrendered everything to you. Everything is out in the open. And I was released. And as I was released, and I was crossing that bridge from the island of Rikers Island, which is an island where 10 jails are located in, and as I went over and I was physically free, I just, I, I got on my knees and I said, God, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me freedom. And time went on. And so my wife and I started a not-for-profit. Um, I started to work for my attorneys as a paralegal because I was studying a lot also about legal motions in prison. And I worked with them for a while and I decided to leave that. And uh, working in this not-for-profit being recognized by elected officials, then going to the UN to address world leaders. And the prophecy was being manifested, wow. was coming to fruition. I was like, oh, this is what this, this man said in federal prison. As I was doing all this work in the community, I was being recognized by these, all these elected officials, going to city hall, working with young people, getting them out of drugs and gangs, forming uh, basketball clinics, 
going to the different um, stadiums, talking to NBA players, Mets, uh, I did chapel for the New York Mets. So I'm doing all these things. And I'm like, God, you know, this is what I was called for to, you know, work on your behalf out in society. And I remember um, one day that I get a call from a pastor and says, I want you to come to uh, connect with a Korean church. It's called Promise Ministries International. And I want you to work on behalf of children. I'm like, this is what I want to do, work with children and youth. So I came to the church and it was amazing. I meet the, the, uh, the pastor, now he's an emeritus, uh, Pastor Namsu Kim. And he starts talking to me about this movement called the 414 window. I'm like, what is this? And basically it's to reach children from the ages of four to 14. And I start to meditate and think about that. And I was like, man, I wasn't reached at the ages of four to 14. No one spoke to me about the gospel. And now God is calling me into this ministry so I can reach these demographics to reach these kids from four to 14. So the, the pastor uh, emeritus uh, at the time he was the pastor, he was telling me, I want you to be a part of this church, part of this movement. And this started in 2009. So I started to work with him on this front to reach this children, these children from 4 to 14 and train world leaders on the importance of children ministry. We started to connect with uh, uh, One Hope with Bob Hoskins and Wes Stafford. Now he's emeritus from Compassion International and, and other world leaders. And we started to talk about with world leaders about the importance of children ministry. So I, start, I started to travel to Thailand and Singapore and around the world and in Asia, uh, Latin America. And I was just praising God and saying, Lord, this is what you've done. And you've called me for such a time as this to reach this generation and lead them to your kingdom. So I, I started to uh, work in this church and I've been here for, I've been in Promise Ministries now for 14 years. Um, God is doing some amazing things in my life. And now I've, I've taken the role as lead pastor to start a Spanish congregation at Promise Ministries International in Flushing, Queens. And I wrote a book called uh, Shifting Shadows, How a New York Drug Lord Found Freedom in the Last Place He Expected. And it's in Spanish as well. And now I'm, I'm currently in options for a Hollywood film, potential Hollywood film. And uh, God is just amazing yeah. and what he can do. He's taken a broken life that was shattered from drugs and gangs. And God turned it around to be his spokesperson, to speak to world leaders. I received a letter from a former president of the United States being recognized at the House of Representatives in, in D.C. that God can take a life and turn it around and make something new yeah. so that the world may know that Christ, that Jesus Christ can transform lives Amen. and can be uh, just so powerful in our world and so that we can mark lives in our communities and in our world. Amen. Herman, when you came out of uh, prison officially, when once you were done with that part of your life, how was it for you and your family when you come out your kids haven't seen you for a while right yeah. your wife 
thankfully uh, is encountered by the Holy Spirit, gives her life to Jesus. But if you could tell us a little bit about that dynamic of coming from this life in prison, but then now starting life again, what did that look like? Did you have any struggles? Was it smooth? What did that look like for you? Uh, obviously, there was some struggles with uh, the economic aspect of it. Even though I was working for, I had the privilege to work for my attorneys, but it took some time to get there. And so there were struggles. There was a time I remember, and I didn't want to go to my parents and say, Mom, Dad, you know, help me out with money. Uh, my wife and I, uh, she was living in Pennsylvania at the time. I was in New York. And we were kind of, you know, grappling with the whole fact that whether I should return to Pennsylvania or move to Florida and just start this whole new life. And we didn't have money. She was the only breadwinner in the house because uh, I wasn't working for my attorneys at that moment. And we had our first apartment. It was very difficult. We didn't have resources, uh, but we had the church. And we were assisting. We were looking around for a church in our local community, but even though we were attending our church in Manhattan, but we lived in Queens. And it was difficult, you know, going to Manhattan at the time. So we went to this local church just to eat breakfast. That's how bad it got financially. So that was one of the struggles. I didn't have struggles with alcohol. I didn't have struggles with temptation with women. Uh, because God had, you know, delivered me from that. But really, it was more the financial aspects of it. And I know that a lot of people that come that come out of jail, they try to transition into society, and they end up going back to the streets. They end up going back to all all they know to make a quick buck, and they get caught up again in sin. So it's very difficult that transition. Thank God that I had people of faith, people within the church, uh, uh, men mentoring me and guiding me along the way. So in that aspect, it was difficult. So my wife moved to New York, and then I got a job with the attorneys. And then me being an entrepreneur, I started different businesses with my brother uh, that eventually so, got out of jail. Yeah, I was going to ask he you. He got yeah. out of jail six months after I was released. Wow. And then my other brother that was arrested with me in my first case, he was released way before I, I was released. So all my brothers now are serving the Lord. My eldest brother's a doctor, which he was never involved in, in any uh, ill gains and, and narcotics. And my third eldest brother, he's in medical school now, and he was never involved in this world. But we're all serving the Lord, and thank God that my mother and father got to witness us being born again, Christians, serving God. You know, and that was, that was an awesome uh, time for my mom and dad before they went home to be with the Lord. Come on. Herman, for people who are watching your testimony right now and are specifically coming out of prison, maybe they encountered the Lord in prison and, and are in that space of, of uh, struggling a little bit financially or whatever it may be, what can you say to that person right now who is watching your testimony, who is losing a little bit of hope and are watching your story? Yeah, I think that the most poignant uh, answer to that is basically to trust God in all circumstances. You know, the Bible says that, um, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right? In the book of Philippians 4.13. And I think it's once we apply that principle and say, God, sometimes things are beyond our control and beyond our strength and beyond our ability, but I'm going to seek after help. And I think help is important, but when you seek that help in all the right places, people within the body of Christ, the church, that can give a good counsel, that can give a good direction and uh, good advice. I think that's where it starts at. And remember, everyone has gifts and talents. 
And as the scripture says that your gift will make room for you, you just got to find that and apply it and let that be that tool through Christ that can really bring about your aspirations and your goals to come to fruition. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to be struggles. It's going to be, you know, temptations. It's going to be, you know, those things in your life. But always press forward and always press on. Amen. For that drug dealer that's watching right now and hasn't come to the Lord, hasn't doesn't believe, um, but for some reason they've made it to this part of the video, what wow. can you speak, what can you say to that person watching right now? That's a great uh, question. Uh, I use this as an example. When I came out of jail, um, there was a particular individual that used to be in our organization. He used to hang out with us and, and do a lot of uh, distribution for us. He was our muscle guy. When I was incarcerated, I used to write to him, and he was in jail as well on another case. And I used to tell him about, about Christ and how he changed me and share the gospel with him. And he was like, yes, I'm going to get right. You're right what you're saying to me. I need to change my life. And so when he was released, I ran into him in the streets. And he said, hey, man, I heard all about you, what God is doing. That's awesome, man. That's great. So I said, how about you? What are you up to? He said, yo, man, the streets is my calling. He said, I'm going to go back and get my hustle. And I was like, listen, if you go back to the streets, they're either going to kill you. You know, something's going to happen. You're going to get killed or you're going back to jail. And he's like, Jesus is good for you, man. But the streets and my hustle and making millions of dollars, that's what I'm going to do. And I felt so saddened. And about a year later, or probably less than that, my brother calls me. He says, pick up the newspaper. I pick up the newspaper and it read, you know, rap bash turns, you know, violent. And my friend got killed coming out of a club. Wow. And, and I, you know, I felt so, so sad because I warned him and he didn't listen. And he was with these two rappers, well-known rappers here in New York. And he was coming out of Latin quarters and he got shot. And he had a gun on him and he got killed. So this is what I would say, that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be your last day. Now is the decision to follow Christ, to follow Jesus. Now is the time to say no more to that lifestyle. Don't do it because look what happened to my friend. He got killed in an instant. And so today may be your last day. So I would say to you is seek God, you know, and he can change your life around. Herman, who is Jesus to you? Jesus is my savior, my God, my Lord. He is everything to me. He is the breath that I breathe every day, uh, my comforter. Um, and he is the one that I look for, for, for guidance and uh, for every need that, that, uh, that I need in my life. Any last words for the people who are watching your testimony, who've gotten to this, uh, to this part? That with God, all things are possible. You may have a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter, and may be in drugs and addicted to drugs or all kinds of addictions, perhaps even marital problems. God can turn their life around. It takes a prayer. It took a prayer with me. It even took a prayer with a friend of mine that also wrote a book. His name is Christopher Ewan. Uh, he wrote a book called Out of a Far Country. And it just takes a prayer. God can turn your son or your daughter, your brother, your sister, a loved one around. Don't give up. 
God can turn up, God can turn your family member around. And that's my advice to you. Uh, look at my life, you know, through a prayer, God turned it around. And it took prison, it took the, the extreme places to do that. It may take the extreme places of depravity, of a deplorable state, but at that place, just like the prodigal son, he came to his senses. And your son, your daughter, your family member can come to their senses through prayer. Don't give up. God bless you and God loves you. Amen.